Now, I'd like us to please to turn to the passage we read in the first epistle to the Corinthians, and the third chapter, and the verses right at the end of the chapter. Though we look to some degree at the chapter, but really, verses from 21 to the end. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, this epistle, or these words, we should perhaps say, are a kind of a summary of everything that Paul has said in the opening chapters of this epistle. And we know that some of the opening chapters are criticisms of the Corinthian church. I'm not come to criticize anybody this morning, but I have to put it in context. And we know this, that these people were in the city that was a very, very corrupt city. Uh, it was Las Vegas, you may say, uh, of the ancient world. It was a sinning city. It was filled with sin of all manner and types and, and examples. And I, I don't want to spend a long time going into all that, but it need, needless to say, these people were surrounded by temptations of every kind and from every hand. And it's not surprising in some ways uh, that Paul had to criticize them in the opening part. Paul has now moved on to Ephesus by the time he sent this letter here, this epistle, and it was all right while he was there, but now he's gone. The power and the temptations that surrounded them are affecting them. And one of the ways that they were being affected is this, that they were taking sides, and as it says here, some are saying they're of Paul, some of Apollos, and so on. And uh, that was carnal, he says. Well, that's just aping the, the things that are going on in the city around you. They had these philosophers, you know, which I won't go into. Uh, the Greek philosophers, maybe Roman philosophers, and people took sides. You know, I, I, I'm of this philosopher, I'm of that philosopher. And they were copying that uh, in the church. And Paul has to bring them up uh, in this situation. So we must take heed here to move on quickly. For we live in a, an age that has departed largely from the things of God. And the norms and the standards of every day are quite distant from what is here in the word of God and which many of our forefathers knew and lived by. So we must be careful that we ourselves are not tainted uh, and tempted in the same way as these people here. And there's something else we may say before we just get to our text. We're reminded by these uh, philosophers and so on that are mentioned in this passage. Uh, there was, you may say, in the story, the unfolding story of the world, an age when certain philosophers were prevalent and held great sway. We know about these philosophers. Some of them were very clever men. Some of them were very deep-thinking individuals. Some of the things they said we may learn from. Some of the things they said and stood for uh, were not so bad after all. But having said all that, this age of the philosophers, just prior really to the time of the coming of our Lord, really utterly failed, totally came short, you may say, 
of answering the deep and profound questions that every thinking human being, every individual needs to ask. Yes, uh, they said some good things. But as one of them said, Plato said this, these men for all their brilliance enabled but a few to see things, note this, a bit, a bit, that's what he said, a bit more clearly, that they didn't come to the light. You could read one of these philosophers and then turn perhaps to one of the Gospels, say John, for an example, and you would say this. It would be like coming out of the darkness into the light. And then you may say this, and what effect did these philosophers have? Well, mainly the light that they had was passed between one and another. It hardly circulated much further. But then compare that with the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul began to preach, when the word of God was opened, when the word of God was set free and sounded forth, 3,000 souls didn't just get a little bit of light on the way. 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 lives were totally transformed. 3,000 people knew their sins forgiven. You know what I'm trying to say. So we may not make that a little observation. One other thing we could, we could add just to emphasize it before we move on. When Paul went to Athens, everybody that reads the Bible knows this. He found so-called gods everywhere. Altars to so-called gods everywhere. And even one which said it all to the unknown gods. So the philosophers failed. And as also has been often repeated, that was all in the providence of God. That man by his own wisdom cannot find God. And we may add that there was the time of the Romans after the Greeks. And we all know the might and the power of Rome conquered the whole of the known world, you may say. But it was as nothing to the power and the blessing that came from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we may make those observations just at the beginning. Um, Paul really uh, sum, sums it all up in the first chapter when he says, uh, let us see, from verse 18 perhaps, chapter 1, where he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So we may say all that at the beginning. Now, we'll come back now and spend the rest of our time with these verses. And what we're looking at is where it says in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, we'll make that our first point, the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. What truth, what wonder is packed into those few words here before us this morning. Let's think of this first 
The world, Christian, is ours. world, Christian, is yours. Oh, you say we don't want to be of the world. But we don't mean it like that. This life in this world is for you. God has made this world, created all things from naught, from nothing. The universe and all its complexity and size, God has made, but this world is yours. All the workings of God's providence in this world, that's a huge subject, but all the workings, the wonderful workings of God's providence are all Christian working for your good and for your well-being. The hymn writer says, this world is ours and worlds to come. Earth is our lodge and heaven our home. Well, it is, but we're here now in this world. All the workings of the seasons, you know it, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. It's all working for the good of the saints and for others as well, we know that, but in a special way for the saints of God. All time is in his hands, we say. And all our time in this world is ours. And that's a very precious thing. We could spend a long time talking about that. You know, Alfred the Great was a great king. That's why he had that title, of course. He didn't waste his time. He did so many great things. And he invented clocks, candle clocks. So he didn't waste an hour. And we should think like that. Given an hour, we use it to the glory of God. You know, the Huguenots suffered a lot in the cause of Christ years ago. They did. But they were great clockmakers. They loved to make clocks because they realized the preciousness of time. This world is a time for using our opportunities. The Puritans invented clocks that chimed the quarter hour because every quarter hour is precious. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a point we should, uh, we should consider in the times uh, in which we're living today. And then all the storms, all the tempests, all the tumults that rage in this world around us, all the big issues, wars and rumours of wars, raising up of parliaments and pulling them down, all these sort of things, the tumults in our own lives, the days of sorrow, the days of anxiety, the days of fear, the days of blessing, the days of strength, the days of weakness, all these things in this world are ours. Here is a great workshop, you may say. I heard a man say, workshop below, showroom above. That was a crude illustration, really. But here is a workshop, and we all have work to do in this world. You may say that. All these things are yours. This world. Start to look at life like that. The things of God. What about the providence of God? We just mentioned it. But the providence of God, we sometimes don't give the word providence its full scope, do we? If something nice happens to us, some seeming coincidental thing works out, and we say, oh, it's the providence of God. But when some bad thing happens to us, we don't say that's the providence of God. But it's all in the providence of God. 
All things work together for good to them that love God. This world is ours. But Paul takes that another step forward when he says, all life, the world, all, all life. Spurgeon once said to his congregation, he said, now he said, uh, have, you, have you ever had this thought? He said, um, you're going through life and then something happens and you, and you say this, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. But then I would fly away and be at rest. Have you ever said that? I have. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. Then I would fly away and be at rest. And you know what Spurgeon said? No, you won't. No, you won't. What did he mean? It's in the Bible. He said this. You won't be at rest until your work is done. You won't be at rest. Until your work is done. We, we know that, don't we? We sit in the chair. Oh, I should have done that, shouldn't I? I should have fixed that up. I should have telephoned that person. I should have done this. And we can't rest until it's done. But on a larger scale, of course, there it is. When our work is done, then we will fly away and be at rest. And, and it's a call to live life earnestly, isn't it? Life is real. And life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. It wasn't, was it? Here in this world we have something to do. The, God, the work of God. Yes, we're not always in church, and we're not always about the church's business. But wherever we are, we're living to the glory of God, are we not? When I was a school teacher a long time ago, the headmaster used to tell us to do certain things. And one day, he said, I want you to put all your teachers, put this notice up in the front of the class. You've seen it. It's not original, this. He said, um, put this notice up for all the children to see. And it's this. What have I learned today? What have I learned today? You know it, how it is if you have a child. You, you say, what did you learn at school today? What do they say? Very often. Nothing. Nothing. Have you heard that? Well, he said, put this notice up, you see. What have I learned today? Well, the idea was, you've got it. Uh, the children should have learned something. When they go home, they can say what they've learned. Whether it worked, I don't know. But we could remember this. What have we done today to further the course of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's a big question, isn't it? But this world is ours, and this life is ours. A charge to keep, I have. A God to glorify. Never dying soul to save. And fitted for the sky. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, let me all my powers engage to do my master's will. There's a nice line in the the village blacksmith, you know that poem. Something attempted, something done, shall win a night's repose. Something attempted, something done, shall win a night's repose. Here we are in the world. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Well, are we in the army is the question. And sometimes we don't seem like an army. But we're in the world, in it, to win it, we may say. 
The world is full of many splendid and wonderful things, and our eyes are blind if we don't see the wonder of the universe and the wonders of creation and all the other beauties that are all around us. But we mustn't just stand staring at them all the time. There is a work to do, our calling to fulfill. I mentioned Alfred the Great a minute or two ago. I must keep an eye on the clock. He liked to read the writings of Bothius. Nobody ever reads them now. But in Bothius, there was this theme. And it was this, the theme of the task. The task. The idea was everybody has a task. We're in the world, and we need to search for it and find it. God's holy work, the task that we have to do and fulfill it as the Lord helps us. So we've had the world, life, and then it's surprising what comes next, really, or death. Paul's talking about these precious gifts that are ours, like the world, life. And then he adds death. We don't normally look upon death as a precious gift, do we? And I understand, and I don't want to diminish this because grief and the loss of loved ones is a, is a fearful thing. And we all know what it is to be heartbroken in these respects and to mourn and the loss of loved ones and all the other things. And we're all to some degree afraid of death. We know all these things. But Paul is speaking to us in a in another way, he's talking about encouragement in the face of death, comfort in the face of death. The Bible reminds us that this ancient terror has lost its sting and the grave its victory. The Bible says of mankind that all, all, all through the fear of death has caused man to be subject to bondage. It haunts us. But Paul is talking about a miracle. The miracle of the defeat of death and making it, as we've often heard before, but I say it again, the gateway to life eternal. Think of that. I, I, I've had to stand by several deathbeds in the course of my ministry, but none like one a year or two back. A man, he was pretty well my own age, so... It, it, it hit hard to me, or home to me, perhaps I should say. There he was, lying in a hospital bed, and I went to see him, and I was wondering what I would say to him, what words I could say to him. I didn't need to say anything. He began with these words, he said. I wouldn't have changed this experience for worlds, he said, as his face beamed. I wouldn't have changed this for worlds, he said. He said, I've had such experiences of the nearness of the Lord that I've never experienced before in the whole of my life. I've seen truth in Scripture I've never seen before. It has been a blessed experience. Now, if you say a man died well, he died well, and, and that can happen. I know there is all the messiness and all the terrible things of death. I'm not diminishing that at all. But Paul's looking at it in that sort of a way. What are the things that make us fear death? I could just uh, touch on them. Well, perhaps sometimes when we contemplate our death, as the years go on, we may say, well, who will continue 
the works that we've set in motion, who will finish the tasks that we feel we haven't yet completed, uh, what will happen, uh, 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 and things like that. And um, what, what we'll be doing when, we've, when we're dead. All these sort of questions. Well, they do alarm us. But there's a certain point when we must depart this world. William of Orange, his, uh, his last words were these. He said, uh, you know that I never feared death. There have been times when I should have wished it. But now this great prospect is opening before me. I wish I could stay a little longer. Now, we're not criticizing him here because he was anticipating death. He didn't fear it. He was a Christian man. But the country was just about to go to war with France. This is a very important war as well. And he just wished he could stay a little bit longer to see to the, the matter. Well, it was selfless, I suppose. But we all have that fear. What will we be doing? Will we have anything to do when we be on this scene? Well, of course, the answer is there will. It will be rest, but it won't be the rest of idleness. Something, I can't tell you exactly what it will be, but it will be something that will be fulfilling and wonderful. You know when the fulfillment you get when you do a job, when it all goes well, you really feel satisfied, don't you? But very often in this world, it doesn't go well. You'll, you'll hit your thumb with a hammer or something when you're trying to make something. But in that world, we will serve God in a way beyond our imagining. And it will be the most satisfying and most blessed, lifting thing ever we could conceive of. The busyness of heaven, we may speak of. So if we're friend of death and then we have nothing to do and we leave works undone, no, um, God buries the workman, said, that was John Wesley said this, uh, God buries the workman, but the work goes on. God buries the workman, but the work goes on. Well, it does. But then, what about the fear of death? The fear of being separated from our loved ones. It's a very hard thing when we lose a loved one. And we may recoil from death because of that fear. Well, I said at the beginning of this sermon, you can't really learn a lot from the pagan world, but let me use an example from the pagan world. Apparently, there was one religion years ago, and it had a certain rites of entrance, certain procedure, ritual you had to go into to be part of it. And it was this, you were blindfolded for a start, and then you were led through a labyrinthine way of tunnels in the dark. And you wondered where you were going and what the point of it was and the end of it. And you were a bit afraid how it was all going to work out. And then suddenly, you were led into a room, ushered into a room that blazed with light. And there were all your friends and all your loved ones, all those you admired. They were all there. And the blindfold was taken from you, and there, in that blaze of light, you saw this happy throng of people. Well, that's not an adequate 
description of what I'm trying to say. But yes, there is a parting in death. But there is, on the other side, there is a great gathering, a great reuniting, a great meeting of individuals, people, that perhaps we've admired for years. And they were all Christians, we'll all be there. And I have not seen, neither have it entered into the heart of man. And I should say, principally, we will see our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will see something of the glory of God. And we shall be satisfied, shall we not? You can't describe these things, but I can remind you in feeble words something of it. Paul is speaking of the gift of death. And then you might just add, we might just add one other thing on this respect. There's another way we fear death, and that's this. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And I suppose many fear that. And it is something to be feared in, in one respect, is it not? We are to give an account of our lives. And all thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. That applies to all of us. A strict account to give. Yes, yes. But you know what I'm going to say next. Oh, shall I stand in that great day? For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through thee I am. From every spot of sin and stain. We shall not fear the judgment in that sense, for Christ has atoned for all his people's sins. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What a, what a comfort that is when we think of these things. You know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We all know that from school, don't we? Well, he didn't really discover America. He, he discovered uh, Tahiti and those sort of places, Jamaica and so on. It was a very worthy thing he did. But people said, you know, it's, uh, you know, oh, we don't know. We don't know what's the other side of the ocean, all that sort of thing. But he came back, didn't he? And he came back with treasures. He proved the reality of what he thought. And our Lord Jesus Christ, you may say, has come through the grave. The third day rose again from the dead. And there he is. He has burst the gates of death. Uh, that, is, that is it. To give us peace forevermore in these things. Well, it, we must hurry on. It says um, the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. We've already said a lot of this. The trials, persecutions perhaps, calamities, temptations, joyous days, blessings untold, all these things, privileges, advantages, life itself, the world itself, all these things are yours, Christian. What, what a huge thing to say. It takes your breath away, does it not? All things, not just this and that, but all things are yours. We could quote Romans 8 easily, you know it without me saying it. 
All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purposes. All things are yours. But it goes on a bit further, and it says this, And ye are Christ's. Ye are Christ's. I suppose, to think rightly, that all of us can say, I am Christ. Or is there a question mark there? Well, he does say, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, does it? I will give you rest. But if we are Christ, all things are ours. We belong to him. We belong to him, you may say, by creation. He made us in the image and likeness of God. Never forget that. We're not monkeys. We're not apes. We're not animals. We're made in the image and likeness of God. It is by creation. Male and female created he them. And we his by his atoning, sin-satisfying, God-reconciling death. By his blood our sins are cancelled. We are his. His purchase. He has redeemed us by his blood. We are his sheep. We are his portion. We are his jewels. And so you could go on. We are his. What, what, a, what a blessing to say. We are Christ's. And finally, we may say this. And Christ is God's. Oh, there is huge theology in that, isn't it? And Christ is God's. We all know Christ is the only begotten Son of the living God, we believe that. We all believe that he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. We all believe that. We all know that for our sake and salvation, his people's sake and salvation, he subordinated himself for a while so that he may become man and dwell amongst us and take upon him his people's sins. But then we also know that he is exalted to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Is he not? And there he is, very God of very God, begotten, not made, as he has always been. He is there exalted on high. And the wonder of it is, he takes our humanity with him. I have not seen, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. These things that God has prepared. Human nature in the very glory and presence of the living God. So, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. We could have had this hymn to finish with, but I didn't think of it at the time, but you will know it. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. So wise a counselor and guide. So mighty a defender from him who loves me now so well. What power my soul can sever, shall life or death, not earth or hell, no, I am his forever. All things are yours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now shall we sing our final hymn, which is...